Our Father, we pray now that you would grip us with the glory of Christ, with the significance of what you have revealed in and through him. And Lord, we pray that you would keep us from drifting away, keep us from neglecting this great salvation that you have made known. Lord, make us those who hear this call to pay much closer attention and respond. Cause us to be those who read, study, mark, and inwardly digest your word, that we might be those who will inherit salvation. Nothing is too difficult for you, Lord. You can arrest our attention. You can... You can transform our hearts and make us people who love the truth, people who rejoice in righteousness, people who hate evil, people who resist temptation. And we ask that you do it for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And as you turn there... I just want to remind you why we are here. We are here because the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. And then he stood before his disciples and he said these glorious words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go. And people went and the gospel came all the way to us. And that's why we're here. We're here because he has all authority. We're here because he said to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in his name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that he commanded. That's why we are here, and that's why the author of the book of Hebrews wrote his book. So we are looking at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 this morning, and the sermon is entitled... The good news, that's verses 1 through 4, that all is subjected to him. And that's verses 5 through 9. So there are two parts of this sermon. The good news, that all is subjected to him. And those are kind of the big ideas of these two sections. And as we approach Hebrews 2, 1 through 9, I want to summarize for you what we've seen in Hebrews chapter 1. And and, um, the way that I'm going to do this is... You know, I've, I've, I've argued, if you, if you weren't here for the first two sermons on Hebrews, I've argued that Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 is a chiasm, and Hebrews 1, 5 through 14 is a chiasm. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through those chiastic structures. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can go listen to the first two sermons. Uh, but I'm going to start in the center of the first one, uh, where you have that central statement that he is the exact imprint of his nature, and I'm just going to work out from there, okay? So the big idea... Before I work through this, let me just give you the big idea. God has spoken in the Son. That's verses 1 through 4. And really what he's spoken entails the revelation of the new covenant. God has spoken in the Son. And then the big idea of verses 5 through 14 is the Son is as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is greater than theirs. That's the big idea of verses 5 through 14. God has spoken in the Son. He's greater than the angels. 
And then the big idea of verses 1 through 4 is, so you've got to listen. We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard in the Son. And then verses 5 through 9, the big idea there is, because everything is subjected to him. He's Lord. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. So we've got to lock in and pay attention. Okay, so to summarize in a little bit more detail, God has spoken in his Son, verses 1 through 4. He is the Word made flesh, Jesus is. He is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. The representation of the Father's substance, who he is. He's the radiance of God's glory. The upholder of the universe, the maker of the world. The atoning purifier. The heir of all things. And he is enthroned at the Father's right hand. The substance and center point. The radiant sustainer. The creating purifier. The inheriting ruler. He is our prophet. God has spoken in his son. Our priest having made purification for sins. Our king. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is God. The exact imprint of his nature. And so, this one, the one described in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, who fulfills Scripture, is eternally begotten. Verse 5, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He is the firstborn. When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And you heard in that text that was read earlier by Gabe about those, those, that assembly of angels in festal array celebrating the Lord Jesus. He's worshipped by the heavenly hosts. He's served by the angels. Verse 7, he makes his angels winds, his ministers flames of fire. He is enthroned forever. Always worthy. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. He is the maker. You, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the renewer, you will roll them up. You will change them, and he is the same forever. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is the Psalm 110 king. Verse, verse, what verse is that? Verse 13, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And he has spoken. And, and, and flowing right out of chapter 1, because of who Christ is, because God has spoken in him, because he's so superior to the angels, 2, 1, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. So what is it that has been heard? Well, notice again chapter 1, verse 14. It, it speaks of those who are to inherit salvation. So what we've heard is the good news, that there are going to be some people who are going to inherit salvation. And, and this, this idea, this great salvation, you see there in verse 3, uh, if we neglect such a great salvation, this is going to be elaborated all through the book of Hebrews, this idea that there are going to be some people who are going to inherit salvation, and the ones who are going to inherit salvation are the ones who are going to pay much closer attention to what they have heard. So we must, you see, you see that language there in 2.1, we must, you could render this, it is necessary to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. 
lest we drift away from it. Now, why does he talk this way? Why does he speak of, of some people who have drifted away? Well, I think we get some insight into what he's thinking about in verse 2 when he says, For since the message declared by angels, and here he's talking about the old covenant revelation made at Mount Sinai. God, uh, as, as Acts 7 and Galatians 3 and other passages indicate, God revealed the old covenant to the prophets under the old covenant by means of these angelic em emissaries. And so he says here, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. So he's talking about the way that in the Old Testament, they hear the law at Sinai, and then the law is proven true. And those people that rebel against Moses in the wilderness, the earth opens up its mouth and swallows them. And then when the people, just as Moses warned them, when they break the covenant, they get exiled from the land. So every, every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution. What, what he's saying is, look, this old covenant revelation... It was attested by God being faithful to his word. And so if we, if we go back to verse 1 and ask, what is he thinking of when he says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it? Well, let's just think through the Old Covenant, the Old Testament narrative. You know, you would think that those Israelites who witnessed the plagues on Egypt culminating in the plague of the firstborn, you would think that they would get to the Red Sea and they would see the waters of the Red Sea in front of them and the army of Pharaoh behind them and you would think they would respond the way that I responded yesterday when the University of Alabama's football team was behind to the University of Texas. I mean, Denny is hoping, Denny was hoping with everything in him that, that Alabama would lose. And I'm looking at, we're, we're watching the game together at a cross-country meet, and I'm looking at that little screen, and I'm seeing, I'm saying, I've seen this movie before. I know how this one's going to end. Alabama's coming back. You know, you would think those Israelites would at least as know, about, know as, as much about God as I know about Nick Saban's team. You would think they would say, God's about to crush Egypt. Egypt has no chance against us. But that's not how they respond, is it? Why not? Well, I think they were drifting away. They'd just seen what God did to Egypt. And they're already drifting away. And then it just keeps happening. They get across the Red Sea, and they don't have food, and they don't say, this is going to be awesome. He's going to do it again. They say, did he bring us out here in the wilderness to kill us? Of course he didn't. And then they don't have water. And it's the same story over and over again. And so I think what the author is saying is you need to pay much closer attention to what you've heard so that you don't respond like Israel did. So that you don't think to yourself when you get tempted by some sin, I'll get away with this. No, you think to yourself, I know where that goes. I've seen people engage in those sins. I've seen what happens to them. I saw what happened to Israel in the wilderness. I saw the earth swallow up Korah and his rebellious henchmen. I know where that goes. That does not lead to life. I don't want that. That's how we want to respond. That's, that's the result. That's the outcome of paying much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. 
So we need to, we need to be those people who value their, their, their boat. You know, maybe you've known someone that has a, a boat's a very expensive thing. And, and people that care about their property, their boats, they, they bring them to a dock and they lash it with a knot that is going to hold to whatever it is that they're tying it up to. They don't just sort of throw the rope up there onto the dock and hope it stays. No, they anchor it. They want that thing to stay there. They'll probably tie it in multiple points because the waves are going to rock and the next thing you don't know, that boat could be out in the middle of the the body of water, drifted away. And that's not what we want. So, um, verse 2, this message proved reliable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution. So verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now, I think the author of Hebrews is paralleling the way that God saved Israel at the Exodus And now the way that God has saved people in Christ. And he's saying, essentially, look what happened to them after the exodus. Now, we've experienced this salvation. How shall we escape if we neglect the fulfillment of the old covenant salvation? Uh, Just as a, a note here, maybe you noticed in the reading earlier that over in chapter 12, verse 25, the author says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. This is remarkable. I think what the author of Hebrews is saying is God in Christ by the Spirit is speaking through me in this letter. So I take Hebrews 12.25 to be tantamount to the author of Hebrews asserting what I'm giving to you in this letter is Scripture, Holy Scripture. God is speaking to you. And then he says, for if they did not escape. And you know, he's just talked about in 12, 18 through uh, 24, the contrast between what happened in Mount Sinai and what's happened in Christ, essentially. If they did not escape, when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So it's kind of the same message there in 12, 18 through the end of the chapter that we're looking at here in chapter 2. And and this question How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's the center idea of of Hebrews 2, 1 through 3. And it's bracketed by statements about the the message that's been declared uh, that that proves reliable. So look at at what follows there in verse 3. Speaking of this great salvation, the new covenant, um, the fulfillment of the exodus from Egypt in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus and this new covenant that God has entered into with his church, the, the author writes, it was declared at first by the Lord. He's talking about the Lord Jesus. So the Lord Jesus, whereas angels declared the message in verse 2, the old covenant message, the Lord Jesus himself came saying, and I think here we can bring in a line from the Gospels, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message of the Lord Jesus. And then everything else that he declared. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to be handed over to sinners. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be raised from the dead. And then all authority is given to me. Go make disciples. That, it was declared at first by the Lord. And then look at the next line. It was attested to us. And that language of, of the message being attested to us is the same language in verse 2. Um, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. 
so he's, it's like he's saying uh, the message declared by Jesus was proven to be reliable by those who heard. He's talking about the eyewitnesses. He's talking about the, the, those whom the Lord Jesus named apostles and sent out. And he's essentially saying, it's something like, it's like Jesus is the first one to declare this, and then the apostles of the Lord Jesus, and now he's not part of that group, but nevertheless, God by the Spirit, the Father by the Spirit, in the name of Jesus, is speaking through him, and, and he's saying the, the message declared by the Lord Jesus was also attested to me, to us, by those who heard, and, and so he's speaking of the way that really we could say we have the New Testament. We, we have this, this collection of writings that has been inspired by the Holy Spirit that reveals the, the gospel. Um, this has been attested to us. And then in verse 4, he's going to speak of the way that God himself gave his testimony to this. So verse 4, while God also bore witness, God testified. How did he testify? By signs and wonders. And I think he's, he's, he has in view all of the signs and wonders that you read about from Matthew chapter 1 through the end of the book of Acts. And, and so you can think of the Lord Jesus walking on water, raising the dead, healing the lepers. You can think of, of the apostles Peter and Paul both raising people from the dead in the book of Acts. You can think of the, the Spirit falling on the day of Pentecost. Signs and wonders. And, and in the same way that that Peter preaches in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost when he says this man was attested to you by God through these miracles that, that, that were done. The author of Hebrews is saying God bore witness to this new covenant revelation by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. So we can think of the day of Pentecost. We can think of passages like 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 which detail the, the way that Christ has equipped the church by the outpouring of the Spirit to do the work of the ministry, and all of this is distributed according to God's will. So verses 1 through 4, I think the big idea is the good news has come. The good news has come, and so we must pay attention. We must pay attention because, as verse 3 says, there is no escape for those who neglect it. There is no escape for those who neglect it. You know, as I was thinking about this passage, uh, I, 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 and I was thinking about the, the message of the author of Hebrews here, uh, if, if I, I, I thought, how, how should I illustrate this? How should I illustrate what the author is, is saying? And I think if, if we had, say, Athanasius, that great church father who contended for the doctrine of the Trinity, if we were going to have him come and preach one Sunday, I suspect that you'd want to be here and you'd want to hang on every word and we would want to record it for posterity and we would want to pay close attention to what Athanasius had to say. Or if we maybe we're going to have Augustine as a guest preacher one Sunday, same thing. Or we could just go through history, Calvin, Edwards, I mean, some of you, you bring it into the present, some of you would lock in and pay close attention to maybe John Piper or John MacArthur. And the author of Hebrews is saying, God has spoken in the eternal Son. How much more attention should we pay? 
So, so I'm, in, by way of application, I just want to quote the author of Hebrews. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? God himself has testified to this message. So we want to read, study, mark, and inwardly digest the word. We also want to respond by crying out to the Lord to cause us to feel a burden to study the scriptures closely, to, to draw us deeper in our understanding of what the scriptures reveal so that our close attention to the gospel bears fruit in, in an expanding understanding and awareness of what God has done for us in the gospel. So we want to pay much closer attention to 1 through 4 because everything is subjected to him, to 5 through 9. So uh, the author of Hebrews, he's going to return to the, the angels. You know, he had contrasted the Lord Jesus with angels in, in uh, chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 4, and then all through 5 through 15. And again, I think the reason he's talking about angels is because the Old Covenant revelation was made through angels. So don't lose the, the train of thought that the author is unfolding here. The New Covenant re revelation, God has spoken in his Son, the Old Covenant revelation being made through the angels. Jesus is so much more superior than the angels are, 1, 5 through 14. So pay much closer attention because now, 2, 5, God is not subjecting the world to come to the angels. He didn't subject it to them. He subjected it to the Son. So the, the idea is Christ is going to reign in the world to come. And, and this is serving as a, as a kind of further reason for paying much closer attention to the gospel, to the good news that you've heard about Christ. So 2.5, for it was not to angels that God subjected the, world, subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Now, this reference to the world to come, I think it picks up chapter 1, verse 14, those who are to inherit salvation. What does it mean to inherit salvation? Well, it means to be raised from the dead and given a glorified body so that you reign with Christ in the world to come. And, and that's the great salvation in 2-3 that we're not to neglect. And, you know, what, what we're doing in our faith is, is what happens when someone works back from something that they know is coming. They know they're going to face. And, and they prepare for it. So um, my, my, my kids, they're in school. They have tests. They are wise if they study for the assessment, for the test. I know the test is coming. I need to study for the material. And for us as believers in the Lord Jesus, the world to come is, is coming. That's what I'm preparing for. That's the assessment. So what I'm doing now in my life is trying to prepare for the world to come, for the salvation that's going to be inherited. And then what the author does is he's going to quote Psalm 8, uh, to speak of the way that the world to come has been subjected to Christ. I think that that's the point he's making, 2-5. The world to come has not been subjected to angels. No, it's been subjected to the Lord Jesus. And thus you should pay attention to what God says in the Lord Jesus. So verse 6, it has been testified somewhere. And now he's going to quote from Psalm 8. 
What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, not long ago, within the last five years or so, maybe six, seven, I don't know. I started, in 2000, I started preaching in Psalms in 2015. So sometimes in, in 2015, I preached on Psalm 8. And, and if you'd like to go back and listen to that sermon, I think it would, it would shed light on what's going on in this quotation. Uh, in, in Psalm 8, I contend David is reflecting on his role in God's world as a new Adam. So David is reflecting on the way that God gave Adam dominion over the created world in Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And then he lists out the animals over which uh, Adam is given dominion. And then in Adam's sin, it's like he surrenders that dominion. He surren he's given dominion over the beasts. And it's like he surrenders dominion to a beast, the serpent. And, and in Psalm 8, David seems to be reflecting on the way that God has granted dominion to Adam that was lost. But then God made this promise about the seed of the woman through which dominion would be restored to the, 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 the son of man, the son of Adam, the one who descends from Adam, the seed of the woman, who would be the future king from David's line. So I think the author of Hebrews... Is, is thinking about the Old Testament in these terms, and he's claiming fulfillment for Psalm 8 in the Lord Jesus, who has come as the one who will restore God's dominion over God's world, and that will be achieved in the new heavens and new earth, the, the world to come of which we are speaking there in verse 5. And then it's like, it's like the author of Hebrews recognizes it doesn't look that way right now. And so he says... Uh, having said first in, in verse 8, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see him who, I'm sorry, we do not see everything in subjection to him. So he's acknowledging it doesn't look that way right now. But, but he's, going to, he's going to develop this further before we go, before we go on. Uh, let me just draw your attention to the way that, that, again, the author is going to match earlier phrases with later phrases. The central phrase of this unit being that those statements there uh, in, verse, in, the, in the second half of verse 8, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. I'm just going to read that again. In putting everything in subjection to him, and let's just piece out Who's who here? God the Father put everything in subjection to the Son of Man, to the Lord Jesus, who is the future king from David's line. And, and the author of Hebrews asserts, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. We don't hang on to this verse like we hang on to Romans 8, 28 but we should. People should quote this verse just like they quote Romans 8, 28. He works all things together for the good of those who love him. We, we should all the time be saying to one another, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And, and with that kind of 
reassurance, we face the, the twists, the turns, the unexpected developments, the, the things that catch us off guard, the things that go wrong. In putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And the reassurance that everything is in Christ's control keeps us from drifting away. It keeps us from being confronted with the Red Sea and having the army of Pharaoh behind us and, and saying to Moses, did he bring us out here to kill us? No. If, we, if we're able to remember in that moment, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control, then thoughts like what the author of Hebrews is later going to say over in chapter 12, when he says, uh, it is for discipline that you endure. God is treating you as sons. Those thoughts, thoughts start coming to mind, and you start thinking, oh, this difficulty is to build my character. God is disciplining me. God is training me. God is building me up in Christ-likeness for the world to come. So in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And then the next lines there in verse 8, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That matches uh, the first part of verse 8, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So we don't see that right now, but, verse 9, and here we are up against a, a deep and high mystery. This is, it, you know, this, this passage, I was, I was thinking this week of the, the way that the author of Hebrews is talking, and we had the false festival at, uh, on Southern Seminary's campus uh, Friday night, and you know, they had those various rides that make your stomach turn if you're past a certain age, and they make your head spin, and, and, um, and it, it's, it's almost like that's what happens as you work through this passage. You, your, your head spins, and you, and you get dizzy from the glorious things that are being revealed. So, so look at verse 9. We see him, he's talking about the Lord Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. And he's really... He, he's working with the same flow of thought that Paul develops in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, where he says that, that Jesus, though he was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. And, and so the way the author of Hebrews is talking about this is the Lord Jesus, who, who was with the Father before all worlds, he is the eternally begotten firstborn of the Father. And he was made for a little while lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus, we see him, he goes on, crowned with glory and honor. And I think here he's thinking of, uh, as he had articulated in 2, 1 through 4, the way that those who heard have testified to what happened with the Lord Jesus. Acts 1, 8 through 11. They, they saw him. There are all these, these different ways of describing that they were looking while the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven and was received into the clouds. And then the angel bears witness, this Jesus will come just as you have seen him go, namely with the clouds of heaven. You've seen him received up into heaven on the clouds. Uh, up into heaven on the clouds. He's going to return on the clouds. And, and then there are connections between that passage, Daniel 7, with Psalm 110, sit at my right hand, which gets quoted 
uh, when they talk about this, you know, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the author of Hebrews, he's thinking, I think, of the Lord Jesus being crowned with glory and honor when he ascended to heaven and was seated at the right hand of the Father. And then here's where it's just astonishing. The reason this happened, same thing, same thing Paul says in Philippians 2, the reason this happened is because of the suffering of death. Because of the suffering of death. Because the Lord Jesus finished the mission. A, a, a mission that, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit must have agreed upon in eternity past. That redemption would be accomplished... Through the miracle of the incarnation, the inexplicable, I mean, God's ways for the, for the omnipresent, infinite God to be confined in the space of a human being, and somehow it, it be that you have these two natures, divine and human, perfectly held together in the one person of the Lord Jesus, so that everything that human beings are is taken on by the Lord Jesus, and he's fully God and fully man, and then he gets crucified and dies and thereby saves his people. And because of that suffering of death, he is crowned with glory and honor, and and the author is going to develop this as the book continues, as, for instance, in chapter 12, he's going to speak of how 12.3, we are to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So you can see the way that, that he's building to apply this. Look at what Christ went through. Now you endure like he endured. You're being conformed to his image. So we don't, we don't at present see everything in subjection to him, but we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And then this last line, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This idea of him tasting death for everyone, it communicates that he bore our shame. He took our penalty He paid our debt. He he tasted the death that should have been in our mouths. And as I was thinking about about what the author of Hebrews is is saying here and how we should feel about this, this this means that everything is subjected to Jesus because of his obedient suffering unto death. This means that the rightful king reigns. The one whom we want to be king reigns. Everything is subjected to his feet and nothing has been left outside his control. Maybe you're familiar with the story of, of uh, uh, Richard Winters and Easy Company as they, as they train. The, the book is called Band of Brothers. There's a, a series of, of uh, films that you need to watch with VidAngel if you watch them. Uh, um, uh, it's, it's, it's a great story about these men who, who parachuted uh, into enemy territory in World War II. And as the story is told, uh, they were first afflicted with a leader that they did not trust. 
a, a, a man who was over them who did not seem to care about them. And, and a man that eventually a number of them revolted against and wound up being transferred to other companies. But this was a bad leader that they didn't respect, that they couldn't trust, and that they went to their superiors and said, essentially, we are not going into battle under that man's command. And the reason for that was they were afraid he was going to get them killed. That's how our lives are right now with every leader we've got with every leader we've got. And we need a leader of whom it can be said, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. We need a leader who is worthy of our complete and full allegiance. And the author of Hebrews is saying, we've got him. Everything has been subjected to him. And nothing has been left outside his control. As that story with Band of Brothers unfolds, that, that guy w- was eventually removed, and the hero of the story, Richard Dick Winters, eventually uh, became the leader of that company. And, and that's like an anticipation, like, a, like a, a faint shadow, like looking into a glass darkly of the relief and joy and gladness we're going to feel when the Lord Jesus indeed has everything subjected to his authority. Another way to think about it would be to think of uh, the way that in the Lord of the Rings, Aragorn is the rightful king. He's the rightful king, but he doesn't reign. And, and all along, he, people are looking to him, and they're yearning for him to take the throne. And then finally, at the end of the story, he is installed. He is crowned as king. So as we As we contemplate what's before us, this idea that everything is in subjection to him, and he is the one who tasted death for us, we need to bring these these remarkable ideas together in our thinking that the radiance of the Father stood in our place. The, The one of whom the Father said when he brought the firstborn into the world, let all God's angels worship him. He is the one who came for our redemption. In this book, we're dealing with ancient prophecies of eternal mercies that that tell of a long enslavement to a bitter taskmaster. And all of that is followed and resolved by a shocking display of humility and love, even unto death. When the Lord Jesus empties himself and takes on the form of a servant. Won't you give this gospel your full attention, your closest attention? And won't you give this king your full allegiance? This, just to be clear here, this is a call to faith. If you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, consciously saying to yourself in your own head and to everybody in your life, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm calling you to that right now. I'm I'm telling you, everything has been subjected to him. He is the eternally begotten son of the father, and he will reign, and he's tasted death to pay the penalty. Won't you follow him?
Everything is his. And he is life. And our last best hope is that he will take us for his own. And the good news is that he in no wise casts out anyone who comes to him. Let's pray. Father, what can we say in response to what you have done for us in Christ? Who is like you, O Lord? You are worthy. Father, we pray that you would help us to respond to what you've done by making it so that the scriptures control our thinking, so that the gospel is the good news that we live out, the good news that's on our lips, the good news to which we are anchored, body and soul. And Lord, we pray that you would receive our praise. We offer up to you these, these sacrifices of praise as we confess the Lord Jesus, our King, our Savior, our Beloved. Amen.